Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, in New York City. Yes, that's right. I'm finally home from my six-week extended trip to Las Vegas, Nevada. I had a very interesting time out there for the World Series of Poker and all of the other tournaments that I chose to play. Uh, I did not make money. It was a decidedly negative outcome as far as my wallet is concerned, but it was a great trip. I learned so much. Uh, I found the competition a little bit tougher than what we're used to um, during the WSOP. I wonder how much of that had to do with all of the various hoops through which one had to jump in order to even participate in this year's shenanigans. I mean, whether you played in the WSOP where you had to stand in line, prove that you're vaccinated, and then proceed to be asked to prove you're vaccinated a thousand more times over the course of six weeks, or on the other extreme, go play anywhere else and have to wear a mask or a visor or a mask and a visor and whatever else. So it was not ideal, but I really did enjoy it. I only had two caches out of the, I think, 29 tournaments that I ended up playing. So that's a very, very low number of caches. I mean, uh, historically, throughout my career, I've cashed in 16.8% of the tournaments I've played. So this is uh, really not a good outcome. I had several bubbles over the course of the summer. And yes, I will continue to call it the summer. I bubble probably more than anyone who's listening to this. And this is just part and parcel of my playing style. Uh, When we're on the money bubble in any tournament, I like to try to find opportunities to go off, play crazy, exploit my opponent's desire to cash in the tournament. And several times in the last month, I was in that position and my opponents kept picking up big hands. (laughs) So when that happens, I do bubble. And then you might say, well, then you should probably slow down in that situation. But what I would estimate about 50%, fully half of all the tournament chips I've accumulated in all of the years I've been playing tournament poker have been accumulated on the money bubble or the final table bubble of whatever tournaments I've played. So uh, to take that part out of my game would really be costing me a lot of chips in the long run. But in the short run and in the short term, variance is a real pain. So uh, yeah, things did not go according to plan at all. I have tons of interesting hands from all the different tournaments that I played. Um, I missed you guys. I mean, it's been fun having the various guests over the last month, but it's almost like a be careful what you wish for because first in early October, I was complaining about how the guests were standing me up. And then we had like five or six episodes in a row where I was interviewing people or uh, in the case of the most recent episode before this one, 
hanging out in a hotel room with three other people. So uh, kind of an embarrassment of riches there. But I kind of missed the chance to just share my thoughts, share my feelings, and share my experiences just one-on-one like this. So that's what this episode will be today. Um, Yeah, the overall recap of the World Series of Poker 2021 is that it was kind of a pain to have to fly with a mask on, uh, play with a mask on, or constantly have to prove that I'm vaccinated. I mean, it happened every time I went to pick up money or register for a tournament. They kept asking, and they told us at the very beginning of the series that we wouldn't have to keep answering these questions and keep proving it, and that we wouldn't have to carry our vaccination records with us, and yet no one seemed to be on the same page with that. So that's one of my biggest complaints was just just the sheer number of times that someone asked me to prove that I was vaccinated once again. I'm in this part of the Rio. That means I'm vaccinated, okay? Leave me alone. This is the 14th tournament I've played in this World Series of Poker. How did I play the first 13 without being vaccinated? Anyway, I don't want to rant about that. Uh, Yeah, the competition was a little bit tougher, maybe just because it was harder to play than it has been in the past, or maybe I just got unlucky with my table draws or whatever. But yeah, it was not uh, easy at all. Not to say that it ever is easy, but I would estimate that in this WSOP, the pro to amateur ratio was at an all-time high or at least an all-time high since I started playing in the WSOP back in 2006, I think was my first year. So yeah, a pretty big sample there, and it was noticeably harder to accumulate chips. Anyway, I did enjoy it. I won in cash games, which is great. My favorite cash game to play is Pot Limit Omaha. I think that is just a perfect game for someone who's not afraid to gamble like me. Um, As far as cash goes, that is the best game to play. I think that no limit cash games tend to be pretty boring unless there's like a lot of straddling and other shenanigans going on because mostly people are just really tight and big pots, at least at the stakes I play, are typically pretty rare as opposed to PLO where it seems like every pot is huge. So yeah, I did well in the PLO cash games. And one night at the Venetian, a woman who had been watching her husband play in uh, in the same cash game that I was playing in, uh, noticed me and said, hey, are you Clayton Fletcher? Which I was like, oh, maybe she's a comedy fan. No, she is a poker fan and an avid listener to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast that you're listening to now. That's right, guys. We have at least one female listener. And this is front page news as far as I'm concerned because all of the analytics and diagnostics and all of the emails and all of the tweets and everyone who interacts with me (laughs) around this podcast is clearly male. So it was really cool to know that there's a woman who listens to this podcast who's not my mother. So shout out to Leslie and her husband. They were really nice people. And I actually enjoyed meeting a lot of listeners 
over the course of the last few months, but none more than Leslie. All right, so let's get to work, guys. I've got a couple of hands for you. Uh, The last time you and I talked one-on-one like this, we were in the middle of reviewing the $1,600 Winfall Classic $1.5 million guarantee tournament. Uh, This tournament got a huge turnout. They actually ended up getting closer to $3 million worth of buy-ins, and I was playing on day 1A. So just to review where we were at, there was a hand from five or six episodes ago where I end up early in the tournament having pocket queens versus a very large three bet and decide to fold it on the turn, even though it was a overpair on a board of five, four, deuce, 10, just because I felt that my opponent was very likely to have aces or kings. So that left us in pretty bad shape. We start this tournament with about 30,000, and now we have 18,000. And the blinds were, this is still early on day 1A, the blinds were 200, 400, with a 400 big blind ante. So we've got about 18,000, which gives us an M of 18. And what is that? About 45 big blinds. So uh, here's the action on the next hand. A big, young, very respectful Asian player makes it 1,200 from third position, and he's got about 50K in his stack. Uh, fold Two folds to seat one, who is a really loud, <laughs> annoying guy with headphones in, and he's obviously listening to really loud music because every time he does talk, he is talking about four to five times louder than he needs to. Now, this is especially annoying when he tries to explain why he made his terrible play in the previous hand, and he does so in a very loud voice. So, uh, yeah, that guy is in seat one, and he calls, and he's in the hijack. The next player folds, and then the button, who is a young uh, California player, uh, another Asian guy, and this one has a Crenshaw sports jersey on. I don't think that Crenshaw actually has a team, but I believe it is a street in the South Central area of Los Angeles. Uh, So yeah, this guy strikes me as kind of like a flashy LA guy, very image conscious, um, definitely probably spends a lot of money on sneakers. So he calls on the button. All these guys have me covered because as mentioned, I lost about 40% of my stack very early on. Uh, The small blind is an old guy, probably late 60s, early 70s, who keeps kicking my chair. And every time I ask him not to, he gets mad at me. So (laughs) I don't know what this tells us, but I find it interesting that you are the one kicking my chair. And yet I'm the problem because I am saying something about it. You know how annoying it is to have your chair kicked every 10 to 12 seconds? It's very annoying. So anyway, that's our small blind, the old guy who plays like an old guy. And now, with all of this action, so again, just to recap, there's been a raise to 1,200. 
and then a call in seat one, and then another call in seat three, and then the old guy in seat four calls. So at this point, there's 5,800 in chips in the middle, and we only have 18,000. I would assert that it's probably profitable to shove with any two cards in this spot because usually that shove is going to get through. And more importantly, it's an increase of about 30% to our stack, which is not nothing, not even close to nothing. I mean, it would be amazing to just shove here and win this whole pot. Uh, We have pocket nines, which is probably another argument for shoving. I actually think that my best move here is to just go all in with the nines and usually take it down, but maybe sometimes get called by ace king or some such hand that I might be in a coin flipped against. Of course, you would also occasionally run into a bigger pair and that would absolutely suck, but probably worth it to try to collect that 5,800 that's already out there. Instead, for reasons I don't know, your boy calls and we see a flop. So with 6,400 in the middle, uh, the flop comes eight of hearts, six of diamonds, five of clubs. So the small blind, that's the old guy, he uh, checks and now the action's on me. I was the big blind with pocket nines and overpair and a gut shot on eight, six, five. Uh, I could lead here. I have enough opponents that leading here is actually not bad. I could probably get action from someone with a worse hand. There are a good number of turn cards that I am not going to like. So, yeah, maybe leading here, trying to commit to this pot and try to get all in if we can is the way to go. But I decided to check, and I think that checking is okay too. I think that many times it will check around and then an overcard could hit on the turn and then at that point we will have to play poker. But at this point, I think that checking and betting are both viable options. So we we decide to check here and it checks all the way around to the button. So this is that player I described with the LA look, the Crenshaw sports jersey, um, the gold chains around his neck. He's young. He has not been at our table for very long. So... I can't really say that much about how he plays other than by judging his appearance, which is sometimes what we have to do in poker. But he decides to bet 1800 into all of these opponents. And that small blind folds and the action's on me. Now, when somebody is on the button and takes a stab at a pot, I think we can generally discount the relative hand strength of that bet. So for example, if you have bottom pair and you're in the small blind and the flop comes eight, six, five, and you have a hand like ace five or something, uh, you're probably never going to bet from the small blind. But if it all checks around to you on the button, you might decide, well, why don't I, you know, see if my fives are any good, take a stab at this pot. I've got some showdown value. I've got some equity in the pot. And most importantly, I have the button. So now and in all future streets, I will be able to act last. So 
maybe we can give this bet a little bit less respect than we might a bet from an earlier position. So with that in mind, I decide to go ahead and move all in for my remaining 16700 Now, my reasons for doing this are many. Uh, number one, and most importantly, there is a lot of money in this pot. And when the pot gets big, especially relative to one stack, the best approach is often just to do whatever it takes to maximize your chance of winning that pot. There is a good chance that I have the best hand and a great chance that if I don't have the best hand, I'm not going to get a better hand to fold. But that doesn't mean that this isn't the right play. Just because I can't get a better hand to fold doesn't mean I shouldn't shove. The reasons for shoving are, number one, the pot is already big and I already have a lot of my stack in it, especially if I just call this bet. That means I will have put in about 20% of my stack already and I have a very vulnerable overpair on this 865 rainbow board. Well, we already said that we can't usually get too many better hands to fold, but what about getting called by worse? Even a bet this size can be called by hands that are worse than ours. And mostly these will be hands that include a seven, hands like seven, six, eight, seven. They have a pair and an open ender. They actually have a great amount of equity in this pot, even though we are slightly ahead of those hands at this time. We might be able to get them to call and we actually love when they fold anyway. So it is an example of a play that benefits both from getting called by worse and from having worse hands fold because those hands have significant equity anyway because we really just have one pair. So we could also possibly get called by a hand like, I don't know, 9-8 or ace-8. Certainly possible. Top pair doesn't want to go anywhere, particularly with 9-8, although we do block that with our pocket nines. A hand like that might not be able to fold just because it's a pair, a top pair with a gut shot. It's got a lot going on and might feel like gambling against our perceived value range as well. We also have to fade the possibility that no one has a monster, you know, hand like pocket fives has a set. We're obviously not getting those hands to fold and we're in pretty bad shape against those hands, but it's not hopeless. In that case, we'd be able to win with a nine or a seven. So it's not totally out of the question that we could suck out if we run into that nightmare scenario. On balance, I really don't like calling with this hand and having to play from out of position for the remaining streets with my vulnerable nines on this board. Uh, so many turn cards are going to be very difficult for me to navigate and might allow my opponents who might otherwise have called with worse to now fold worse hands. I feel like getting it all in right now is the way to go. And so that's what we do. And now we just have to hope that no one is really eager to put chips in. So to my delight, it folds very quickly all the way back around to the original better, my California dreamer. And now he looks positively tortured. 
He looks like he's upset with himself for having made this bet. And he keeps doing the math. He's like, well, how much is in there? How much can I win? And I'll carry the one. And I'm watching him and he's contorting his face. And he really seems like he's putting himself through the ringer on this decision. Now, I should mention, I did say he has me covered, but he's got something like 35000 in his stack. So this is not a trivial fraction of his betting units. So he's in the tank. He's trying to figure out what to do. And eventually he shrugs and says, I call. Turns over pocket sevens and we win the pot to double up. So he needs my nine or a four to win this pot. Notice if he makes a set, I'll make a straight. And then of course he would have a redraw, but it bricked off pretty beautifully with deuce, deuce. And (laughs) that's the run out you want when you're ahead, right? So we win the pot and more than double up. So that kind of got us back in the running and got the bad taste of those pocket queens out of our mouth. Things continued to go swimmingly for us for the next couple of hours. And when the blinds were 300, 600 with a 600 big blind ante, we had 70,000 and the average at that point was only 40,000. So quite a turnaround. Then this hand came up and we're still at that same table. Uh, the uh, old man that, that was featured in the podcast episode five or six weeks ago that I was affectionately calling old man Florida or old man visor. Uh, He's an old guy from Florida who's wearing a visor. So I'm really clever with my nicknames. Uh, He limps in and that starts kind of a parade. He's in second position. That kind of starts a, uh, a limp parade where four others limp in for 600 and everyone seems like they just want to be, you know, a friendly game, right? We're going to see a flop here. So we are in the big blind once again. This time we've got a seven of spades and a five of clubs. So seven, five offsuit in the big blind. This is not part of my pre-flop semi-bluff, put in a big raise and try to punish the limpers kind of hands. It's just a little too good to do that with uh, as a bluff. And it's not anywhere near good enough to do it with for value. So this is a, what I think is a pretty uncontroversial check. And we're going to see a flop six handed. And so with 3,900 in the middle, the flop comes nine of hearts, seven of hearts, five of hearts. We have the seven of spades and five of clubs for bottom two pair on a one suit board. Nine, seven, five, all hearts. The small blind checks, and I decide to lead out here. Uh, there's 3,900 in the middle. I bet 1,200. Now, this might seem like a small sizing to you, like Clayton. Don't you want to protect your hand? If anyone has a heart, that player has a flush draw that can beat you, etc., etc. And you're right, but what I've learned from studying. Andrew Brokus videos on tournamentpokeredge.com, where, by the way, you can get $10 off of your first month's membership, which gives you access to 
all of Andrew's videos as well as thousands of hours of other videos from the likes of Alex Fitzgerald, Colin Moshman, Jared Smith, Danny Noseworthy, and so many more wonderful coaches. You just have to use the promo code podcast at checkout for $10 off of your first month's membership. So what I've learned from watching Andrew Broca's videos on Tournament Poker Edge is that the solvers have determined that even multi-way, we don't need to bet very big because it's a pretty binary decision. The guy either has the ace of hearts or king of hearts or some big heart, or he does not. And no amount that I bet is going to get him to fold those hands unless I really went crazy and put in like double the pot or something like that. Then a good disciplined professional player would be able to fold the nut flush draw on this board. Uh, It's either that or he has a hand that can fold pretty easily. Like queen jack of spades is not going to continue for any bet. So the solvers have figured it out before the rest of us. You don't really need to bet big when it's all hearts on the flop. So I put in 1200 and I'm actually looking for action here. I want to get called by a hand like ace nine with the ace of hearts, uh, possibly king nine with the king of hearts, maybe a gut shot like eight of hearts, seven of spades, something like that. Somebody that has like a weird combo draw, like a non nut flush draw, but also a straight draw to go along with it and they just they're not ready to fold especially not for my small bet that's okay i'm ahead of all of those hands and i actually want action so i put in 1200 and only our old friend old man visor from florida decides to call so we are now out of position against a terrible player i described this player earlier in a previous podcast but just in case you haven't heard that one Let me say, he's been involved in about 75% of the pots. And I've been at this table since this tournament started. I've been watching this guy limp in and then call a raise so many times. He never raises before the flop. He limps in. And then if someone else raises, he calls. This man does not respect the value of a dollar and is not trying to play well. He's trying to see what happens so that's the type we love playing pots with him we'd love to trade seats with him but they just don't allow that in tournament poker as much as i wish they would so we're pretty happy that he's the only caller when we bet 1200 into 39 with bottom two pair on nine seven five all hearts so he's got about forty-eight thousand behind so we have him well covered there is now 6300 in the middle And the turn is the Jack of Spades. We've got a board now of nine of hearts, seven of hearts, five of hearts, Jack of Spades, and the action is on Clayton. Well, I'm not really scared of that Jack. I I guess it does complete one straight, 10-8. But otherwise, it's a pretty innocuous card considering that we have two pair. I suppose my opponent could have a hand like Jack-9, and now have a better two pair. But that's a pretty small concern under the circumstances. So we're going to bet again for value. And I decide to put in 3000 In hindsight, 
This man is such a calling station. I probably should size up a little bit. The strategy against someone that really, really likes to call and really, really hates to fold is to value bet more of your hands more relentlessly and for bigger sizing. And it's simple. He's not folding anyway, so you might as well go for value with hands that you would normally just want to check down for showdown value. You can now turn them into value bets because your opponent's calling range is so so wide as to make doing so profitable. And to the second part, why should I go bigger? Well, that's very simple. It's just a way to invite our loosey-goosey calling stationy opponent to make an even bigger mistake by calling an even bigger bet when he is behind, as he typically will be in this situation. I'm not worried about him having a flush, although, of course, he could. I'm not worried about him having a set or two pair, although, of course, he could. In the long run, having two pair against this opponent is an absolute goldmine, and so I need to play the strategy that will accumulate the most chips for me in the long run. So that's what we do. We should bet bigger, but we only did 3,000. Could I go back in time and play this hand again? I probably would have bet something like 4,200 into the 6,300 pot. Uh, Old Man Visor calls very, very quickly. And the river is the eight of clubs. So the board is now nine, seven, five, jack, eight, with three hearts on the flop. Uh, so now any 10 has a straight. Uh, several hands have better two pairs. And so you might think to yourself, well, Clayton, you're not really going to try to value bet this again, are you? Well, actually, yes, I am. I believe that my opponent's most likely holding is one pair. Probably a nine, maybe something like queen nine or king nine or ace nine. Obviously, I hope it's not 10-9 because that hand just got there. And yeah, for sure, against a more sophisticated or more talented opponent, I should probably check this river and maybe call sometimes, turning my hand into a essentially a bluff catcher, hoping that he just missed his flush draw. And now the only way he can win the pot is to bet this river. And the river is a scare card, so maybe I can talk myself into calling uh, with some frequency on the river against a sophisticated opponent. But against this guy, the strategy is we bet, and if he raises, of course, we have to fold. But we don't want to check and let him off the hook because, and this is the key, he would call another bet with one pair. So for that reason, we need to punish that tendency by betting when we can beat one pair even on a scary board like this one. So we put in, uh, well, the, the pot is now 12,300 and we can't really size up because he's not that bad of a player. He's not going to call like a pot size bet with one pair, but we've seen him make so many curious calls and terrible ones at that. We can't really check this down. We've got to try to get some more value for our hand. And with 12,300 in the middle, I decide to bet 5,500. So a little less than half the pot, fully expecting to get called by a hand like King-9. So 
uh, our opponent snap calls. So what does he have? Well, he wins with pocket jacks. So it turns out this man limped in from second position and started that whole limp parade with two jacks, hit three of a kind on the turn, and then just had to call all of our bets worried about the straight or the flush or whatever else. Honestly, I don't blame him for not raising me on the river because obviously I can't call a raise unless I can beat three of a kind. But yeah, I think pretty unlucky for us there. We lost a lot of chips against a player that we had a very logical strategy carefully designed to exploit, but he caught up on the turn and we ended up value owning ourselves. (laughs) Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. So good to be back with you. I hope that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And if you're celebrating Hanukkah, I hope that is going great. And I'm looking forward to bringing you many, many more episodes in the coming weeks and months. I have a full catalog of hands that I played during my six-week visit to fabulous Las Vegas. And I'm looking forward to sharing so many of them with all of you. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Love nobody. Everybody, everybody.